the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Yeah, so welcome along, one and all. Welcome along to episode 49 of Enter Sad Men. Um, my name's Steve. Good to have your company, as ever. Good, too, to have the company of Mark and Richard, my partners in musical crime. Um, and I can see them now staring at me through their lenses um, enter sadmen.co.uk if you want to know anything about us, what we do. Um, and what we do do is review albums, three per episode, um, to place somewhere in our Hall of Fame, the August Enter Sadmen Hall of Fame. Um, we cull our chosen albums from theme, um, do it every time. Then we listen to them, we review them, we rate them, and we rank them. Simple as that. Our themes are pretty random, it has to be said, and the theme randomly dished up for this episode, episode 49, was commercial giants or precious metal. We're looking at um, big selling albums. In fact, the biggest selling rock albums that fit into our criteria, which is pretty much between the years 1970 to 1995. Live albums, yes, begrudgingly. No uh, compilations, which is fine. So, boys, how did you get on with finding your way through some of the biggest rock vinyl slabs the world has ever produced. Well, it's quite a list, isn't it? It's quite a list uh, when you look at those I mean, the multi, multi platinum, multi million sellers around the globe. And we've done a load of them so far, haven't we? I mean, we've done Led Zeppelin four. We're yet to do Back in Black, but we've yeah we've done App- Appetite for Destruction. Uh, so I-, I had a look down, and something intrigued me intrigued me about a band that uh, we haven't featured yet on uh, on the pod mixed american british band but they had amazingly and i think i don't know what it was the top 20 or 30 biggest sell- selling albums globally they had four their first four albums and i thought well well this is worth a try then and uh, yeah the, the band the band of foreigner the band of foreigner and um well if they've done the four albums I thought, well, let's choose the first one. So I've gone for, for their debut, uh, eponymous debut. And, yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. Mark, what about your choice? Well, I've been a bit like a kid in a sweet shop. Uh, this, well, I was a bit like a kid in a sweet shop when it came to choosing the album. But just to backtrack a minute, I, I don't know about you two, but I kind of feel like we're tiptoeing around back in black. And we're not we, – none of us are quite thinking it's time. So um, because – it was it was the obvious choice, wasn't it? It's you know, the biggest selling rock, you know, out and out rock album of all time. But I do feel like we're every time we have the opportunity to choose it, we don't. Um, so I don't know what that's all about. Maybe it's maybe it's wanting to see some of those bands, those albums stay in the top five. I don't know because because in the back of my head, I think we're all, or in the back of our heads, I think we're all thinking that's a main top top five album. Mark, I think we're going to have to wait for the theme. Albums with the words "back in black" in them. Then I think I think that's what it's going to take. Yeah, I think it's true. I think it's true. Um, so anyway, I did avoid "back in black" uh, like everybody else, and I kind of went out on a limb. And then I then I had one of my moments where I went, "Oh, actually, does that actually even qualify for the brief?" Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's an album that's got an absolutely fucking a list metal cover. Um, and the innards of it, the innards of it, are not quite as metal as the cover would have you believe. So I went for the 35 million selling Bat Out of Hell, and Steve's delighted. Is that what it sold? 35 million? 35 million. Oh, yeah. Safe to say, I wasn't one of them. 
Christ. But Steve, Steve, you went even bigger, I think. Well, not, not necessarily in album sales, but certainly in terms of prestige and reputation. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and the other one, um, the other, well, there were two or three on the list that caught my eye, certainly. Um, well, well, I mean, Diver Down by Van Halen, not because it's particularly their best album, but it's bit, just as a big seller, and I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to it again and doing it for the pod. And Master of Puppets, of course. Metallica would have been another one. But you are right with the Back in Black thing. It's odd. We will come to it. Yeah, so I just took a punt on, well, I stuck it in the 70s. You two were staying there. I thought, well, let's let's have a 70s clean sweep. And I've gone for Led Zeppelin 3. I would imagine that two of these three albums will do very well in our Hall of Fame, but we shall see. So listen, let's, <laughs> so let's have a little listen to uh, some, of, some of the pearls of these three albums, and then we'll come back and uh, we'll discuss them. Right, well, I hope you enjoyed that, because we certainly have over the last uh, seven days, but we start in chronological order as always, which means we're heading back in our time machine to 1970, and a bunch of hairy Herberts, four of them, uh, who were making a big noise, and had been for a couple of years. Steve, take us through Led Zeppelin 3. October the 5th, 1970, to be specific. That's when it was released. Led Zeppelin III, therefore their third album, um, recorded November 1969 to August 1970. I would have so loved to have been around when this came out. I would so love to. I mean, I was around in as much as I was five years old, but I mean around, around. Listen, everyone knows the story. I'm not going to bother retelling it. But a year earlier, this English supergroup had basically rewritten the Hard Rock Manual. I think that's a fair comment with albums one and two the world and his wife were, were waiting for led zeppelin three and of course that sense of anticipation was was lengthened a little bit more i think it was due out in the september but there were issues with the with the sleeve with this very radical sleeve design which i have checked on wikipedia was called a volvel did you check that volvel the kind of yeah. moving of papers to create images through holes and that i think that's what it means anyway it was quite a radical album cover and 
better than that, bigger than that, the album itself was radical in as much as they had 16 tracks written and ready to go for this album. And of those 16, they chose 10, seven of which were not in any conventional understanding of the word hard rock songs. You've got a side of ballads on, on, on this album. Um, and that's why this album caused so much opinion division. A lot of critics were very unkind about it, um, said it was too folky, just too far removed from what had gone before. Um, but there were other reviewers who slagged off the three heavier songs um, on this album, called them Walls of Noise, which I think was something that they'd been accused of that before. I don't think that was anything new as such. But Jimmy Page took it so badly that apparently he didn't do a media interview for 18 months after after that. So he was clearly touched in a bad way by the shit that had been said about this album, which is fascinating. Um, now, you can't disagree about the fact that it is slower, moodier and more folksy because it just is. But it's not dull. I mean, it's it's, it's just a band um, trying things, I think. And, and, and largely, I think it's come off. Interestingly, it's the heavier tracks on here that I actually think are less great than the other stuff. I mean, I like the Immigrant song, which is the opener. Less bothered about the other two, I must admit. What I will say about this is musically, in terms of musicianship anyway, I mean, this is superb. Every working part in good order. This stuff is not just thrown together. So, yeah, produced by Jimmy Page for the, on the Atlantic label, 43 minutes long, produced at three different studios and then remixed and then mixed again in America. But it was produced at um, Olympic Studios in Barnes in London, Island Studios in Notting Hill in London. And it was their first trip to Headley Grange um, in East Hampshire. Personnel, well, you know them all, don't you? Plant, Page, Jones and Bonham. It's about as famous a quartet as you'll get. Highest UK chart position, one. Highest US chart position, one. Respectively, 40 weeks and 19 weeks in each country. Fewer weeks in the US because they just didn't get it, was the sense I've got from reading reviews. They didn't get it quite as much as they did over here. I don't know. Sales info suggests otherwise it went six times platinum in the States. The mix is on side one, and side two, we just go off in a very, very different direction. Fascinating album, and um, I love it to bits. I have this internal debate with myself about which is my favourite Led Zeppelin album, and it's it's always between three and four. So I I was kind of massively into Zeppelin four, like you two came to it late, because I wasn't around either. Um, when this stuff was really going on. So I came to Zeppelin 4 in 81, and I bought this um, two years later. You talk about Plant's voice. It's a, it's, a, it's a miracle that he sounds as good as he does because they'd come off this absolutely gruelling North American tour, hadn't they? And his voice was absolutely shot to bits. So, you know, the fact that he is in this kind of form, admittedly, you know, recording it a year later, so he'd had a while to recover. But yeah, he does. He, I think he's absolutely on top of his his game. I think pages as well. I think you know, there's so much about this this album to love. And the other thing that I think is also remarkable to me is that during the sessions when they were writing this, not not the session that Page and Plant had at Bronnie Orr um, in the sort of the early spring of of 1970 before they went into the to the studio and which kind of set the tone of the template for the album's direction not that but the earlier sessions back in uh, london at olympic studios in the, the year before in in, in 69 and um, they also wrote in those sessions the rover and down by the seaside which appeared yeah. on physical graffiti 
and also Poor Tom, which made it onto the kind of the post-breakup release um, coder uh, in 82. So, yeah, I mean, th- this was a band that was just brimming with ideas and invention. And we get some of that invention on this album. And, you know, a lot of it works. There's one track that I don't think does um, right at the end. But, yeah, I mean, I, I just... I love it. I love this album to bits. And when I hear it, it's always my favourite album. And then I listen to Zeppelin 4, and that's my favourite album. So that's how close they are. But yeah, I've had a blast this week listening to this. What about you, Richard? Yeah, I'm with you on on 3 and 4. I think four's, 4's the point that everything came together. It's an epic, isn't it? I mean, it's got the best of all of the directions that were going on the first three albums. 3 is just a very, very special album. The production on it, and the clarity of it is is phenomenal. Gives you the space to just think, my goodness, this guy, this guy can sing. It's a very soulful album. Um, I think that's what makes it quite special. Would you also agree, you two, that that if you consider Led Zeppelin's career to be the sort of a series of atolls that kind of link together, that you get the first couple, and then there's a big gap after two, and then there's four and then physical graffiti and so on. And three is kind of this little island out on its own because there's, there are very few threads from two to three or from three to four. You get a, you get kind of a glimpse of it now and then, but it's not like two to, it's not like um, four to physical graffiti where you go, oh yeah, I, I understand how that happened. Mm-hmm. It is, it is out on its own. It's, it's a, it's an album almost created in, I feel in isolation. Would you agree mm-hmm. with that? Yeah, but I think compared to the first two, yes. But then I, I think that the there are bits of this. If they hadn't done three, you wouldn't have got the battle forevermore. True. So, so that that it is. You're right. It is. It is this in the atoll. It's it, it's not in the line. It's off to one side. But it it broadened their their ideas. Whether it was the time they spent in the cottage, I don't know. The fact that there was, you know, they they were working acoustically and. Well, there's a there's a little quote from um, from Robert. We'll, we'll crack on and, and, and talk about the album in a moment. But there's, going back to the lukewarm critical reception that the album got, Plant was quoted as saying in an interview, "You can just see the headlines, can't you? Led Zeppelin goes soft on their fans, or some crap like that." The point is that when you begin a new album, you don't know how it's going to come out. When we conceived those numbers at Bronior, we started to see what we wanted to do with the album. It was obvious it was not going to work, and it just grew from there. Sorry, it was obvious it was going to work, and it just grew from there. Now we've done Zeppelin Three. The sky's the limit. It shows we can change, and it means there are endless possibilities and directions for us to go in. We won't go stale, and this proves it. And he's right. Mm. Absolutely. I'd also just just adding to a point that Richard made that if we hadn't had Led Zeppelin Three, we wouldn't have had the Battle of Evermore. If we hadn't had Tangerine, would we have had Stairway to Heaven? I think three was a massive stepping stone, and and because and they've studied their work going forward with all sorts of stuff like this. So this was almost, I mean, not quite a change in direction because they never stopped rocking, and it was knew how to rock. But I think, I think three is a, is a critical point uh, about where they, you know, flexing their muscles inventively, imaginatively, innovatively going forward, and um, it made them. It made. I don't think we'd have had four; wouldn't have been as good as it was without three. No, I agree with that. But enough about four, because we've reviewed four. Let's stick to three, um, which kicks off with Immigrant Song. Those critics who just wanted the next whole lot of love somewhere in Led Zeppelin 3 probably would have been quite excited at this stage, because this is about as close as you get to that. Um, and nothing else is like it. 
So what do you think? How are you with the Immigrant Song? Great opener. Oh, I absolutely love this song. It's, um, I mean, it's obviously it's one of the most used songs in film scores, isn't it? Most, most notably recently is the score for the final battle scene in Marvel's Thor Ragnarok, which also did the job of converting my then 13-year-old daughter into, if not a Led Zeppelin fan, at least a Zeppelin appreciator. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it was written on a trip to Reykjavik, apparently. Yeah. Plant said, we went to Iceland. It was one of those times when you go to bed at night, but you don't sleep because the daylight's still there. A 24-hour day, there was just this amazing hue in the sky. And it was one of those things that made you think of Vikings, big ships, and John Bonham's stomach. <laughs> it's got this absolutely hypnotic riff hasn't it and blood curdling viking screams and bonzo going hell for leather on the drums i mean I, I, here's a question is there a better zeppelin opener not in my book i have to say and jimmy page agrees with me yeah fair enough i do like custard pie but okay fair dues <laughs> rich you like custard pie as well don't you oh yeah better opener fool 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 I'll take too long thinking about it. The thing that that drives this is that drum beat. We've talked a lot about songs where the drums are actually pushing the entire thing along. It was this the original that that drum beat is just incessant and continuous. Apart from the odd break, I can picture a Viking ship charging through these waters, uh, just cutting its way through through the waves. It's iconic, isn't it? Absolutely brilliant. And it's only three minutes and something as well, or two minutes and something. You know, it's an epic song in a non-epic time. Amazing. And you know how? And as to how far it did in the charts, of course it didn't, did it? Because they had a no singles policy in the UK, didn't they? Zeppelin. Yeah. So. It was intended as a single, a plan that got so far that the release was actually allocated a catalogue number. There you go. Two zero nine one zero four three. If you're interested. Okay, and then they just pulled the plug late on. Yeah. And Immigrant Song goes into The Wonderful Friends, which is the first, as I say, of several acoustic numbers. And this is just majestic, absolutely majestic. Played in a key which Page made up, apparently, a C-type tuning, he said, whatever that means. I'm not good at this. Um, and then there's some orchestral stuff in here arranged by, uh, by John Paul Jones. Well, they were after a kind of ethnic Indian sound, weren't they? Which you can do to a point. Except, of course, when Plant opens his pipes, because there ain't no Indian in him. That's um, that's old school rock. It's a, it's just a wonderful hooky acoustic number. Such an infectious tune, played beautifully. Love it. And and I've spent all week. You can't you can't argue. It has to go into Celebration Day because there's the segue. Although you don't get that on Spotify. But I was thinking it shouldn't it shouldn't actually be a track two, and I was umming and ahhing over what should be track two, and I'm thinking, and I was just sat there thinking, what the fuck am I doing here? I'm trying to rearrange Led Zeppelin three. Can I just stop it? <laughs> so it's fine where it is. <laughs> well, this just shows the the breadth of I don't know, exposure and influences that they were given themselves, doesn't it? Because there's it's almost a bit folky. It's a bit ragtimey. There are all the Eastern elements to it. it. It's phenomenal. I couldn't think of anything else to follow immigrants on. <laughs> you know <laughs> that's how you know it. Yeah. <laughs> As I say, it segues into Celebration Day, which you won't get on Spotify because they don't do segues, do they? Which is kind of how it is, but so be it. Not a heavy song in the sense of an immigrant song kind of 
heaviness, but it's quite chaotic. Some decent riffing in here. Quite funky guitar. You were talking, Rich, about listening to this, you know, the work that John Bonham does. You listen to the bass line through this, for example, of John Paul Jones. It just wanders everywhere, and it's so... You should listen to this album through each instrument, track by track, because what they do is is quite phenomenal because some things will dominate tracks. Page's guitar immediately dominates a lot of these tracks. But listening to, to John Paul Jones' bass work, it's an education. It really is an education. And Bonham's drum peels in, in this track, you know, it's... I love the jam finish to it. It's not one of my favourite tracks off the album, as I, as I said earlier, but I still like it an awful lot. That segue, um, that crossfade from Friends, that was um, that was a deliberate device, wasn't it? Because um, to, to cover up a cock-up, they wiped Bonham's rhythm intro into Celebration Day. I never knew that. Yeah, erased by some engineer or something, wasn't it? So they, they kind of... they uh, <laughs> That... Uh, they did what Paige later described as a salvage job and just um, did kind of this swirling effect uh, to cover the fact it didn't actually have an intro celebration day. But it's such an upbeat, happy song, isn't it? It just barrels along with that lovely little guitar motif of Paige's running underneath it. And what I love about John Bonham uh, on everything that Zeppelin did is it's only ever what's needed, isn't it? There's no superfluous stuff on there. It's just... Yeah, simply complex, simple stuff. There's such a groove on this song, isn't there? And it goes into Since I've Been Loving You, um, and slow it all down again. A track of which Rolling Stone wrote represents the obligatory slow and lethally dull seven-minute blues jam. They've done this kind of song before with I Can't Quit You, Baby, Ramble On. So Since I've Been Loving You is that Zeppelin, elongated, multi-layered, blues-based epic, and, and they did them again going forward beyond Led Zepp 3 as well. Never, ever sounds dated. I just think it's such a seductive song. It, 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 yeah, it drifts, but it's with such warmth. You, this is a song you just have to absorb. I think it's just an outstanding, drifting, ballsy blues song given you know, huge wings by some incredible guitar work from Jimmy Page and not least the guitar solo in the middle of it, by the way, and some positively remarkable vocal gymnastics. Uh, Apparently, I'm told, you can hear Bonham's bass pedal squeaking on the vinyl version of this. I I don't know, I haven't managed to hook myself up with the turntable, so I haven't been able to fact-check that, people. (laughs) Side one finishes with um, Out on the Tiles. Bonham apparently came up with a riff that runs through this and um, he would use it. He would use the song as the launch pad for drum solos back in the day. Personally, and Rich is going to hate me for saying this, I think you can tell it's been written by a drummer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's got a real rhythm. I mean, my my first comment on this to describe it, it's a jaunty old tune, isn't it? I mean, it really (laughs) does bounce along it. And and again, it's another, like the last one, I, I love the start, I love the middle. But for me, the outro on this, that last minute or so, yeah. is just fantastic and, and, and just could go on forever. I, yeah. I'd be happy to hear that forever. Derived from a drinking song, apparently, that John Bonham used to recite in the studio with the words, I've had a pint of bitter and now I'm feeling better and I'm out on the tiles. <laughs> it started out as a backing track called Bathroom Sound. And if you've got the Led Zeppelin Three companion audio disc released in 2013, now you know why it's on there. You're welcome. Should we turn this over? 
because side two's just well i mean I, to me it gets better and better and i love side one all change all change in terms of style gallows pole kicks off side two Fred Gerlach, apparently, as an American folk musician, written a song called Gallows Pole based on a centuries-old folk song. Lots of other people have done this kind of thing. But anyway, it inspired Page to give us his version. Yeah, it's, it's one of the stars of the album, as far as I'm concerned. Indeed, one of the best songs Zepp ever did. And going back to what Richard said earlier about how they can build a song. This is another classic example of, you know, building a song, just builds and builds and builds. We've got banjo in here. We've got Page going through his guitars. Jones plays the mandolin. It's it's a great story as well about the man pleading with the hangman to wait for someone to bowl up with a bribe. Everything about, and I don't do stories. As anyone who listened to the last episode, Crimson fucking idol. But I just think this is um, a joy, an absolute joy. Yeah, banjos, mandolins, it's like some mad orchestra's turned up in the studio and, you know, throwing instruments together that you'd never put together in a million years, but Zeppelin did and it worked. The first time I heard this, this song just blew my mind. It's so evocative. It, the pictures it paints are so vivid. Uh, it always used to make me a bit sad, the notion that this doomed soul awaiting execution believed he could and would be saved, but of course he wasn't. First time I played, I thought, oh, that this might be my favourite ever Zeppelin song. Turns out I was wrong, but it's always been a close run thing. But um, it teases you, I feel, in terms of you think it's going to go, it's going to go somewhere. It's going, and, and then they go, and it goes back into the hangman and sits down again, and then eventually it just absolutely takes off. The drums come in, you think, oh yes, here we go, and it goes and it goes and it goes. Absolutely, my favourite. Love it. When I first heard this, this surprised me with just how amazing it was. Just it, it's almost it's almost impossible to say it's, it's so different to any stuff they've done because it's everything they do is kind of different. But this one just I don't know, it just hit me. Just, just it just felt such a different kind of song. From gold to tangerine, a rarity insofar as it's one of the few Zep songs um, where Page is listed as the only songwriter. But there is some dispute over that because he wrote this during his Yardbirds days and there are friends of Keith Relf who was the Yardbirds uh, lyricist and singer um, who claim his prints are all over this as well but yeah whatever again any number of instruments going on here we've got two acoustic guitars six and twelve strings we've got a pedal steel guitar Jones brings back the mandolin it's ever so mellow and quite and quite quite the kind of um Anticlimax is the wrong word. It's, it's a it's a come down. It's, it's a clambering down from the from the gallows pole, isn't it? In terms of tone, this is my favourite Zeppelin track of all time. If you allow me to wax lyrical for thirty seconds, mm. I just think this is absolutely beautiful. And given this amazing dramatic effect by the combination of the, there's that prolonged silence between the first movement and the rest of the song, and then this Percy's hugely mournful performance, and then Page's guitar which is actually full of fatty distortion which is like really a really interesting counterpoint to the rest of the song and there's a sequence in here where plant follows the guitar down the scale and every time you think he can't go any lower and he does and it's just for me three minutes and 11 seconds of sheer gorgeous perfection that proves zeppelin was jaw-droppingly effective handling the shorter work as they were the epics. There are some songs that I think have the power to move you to tears. And for me, this is one of them. I think it's absolutely beautiful. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful song, isn't it? Um, I love the layered 
vocals on it. The one thing that spoils it for me a little bit is the solo. I, I, I find it, particularly at the end, a little bit uncomfortable. Doesn't quite fit for me. Still, well, I, mean, I still love it, uh, but not quite as good as the previous track for me. I'm not quite as good as the next track either. I, I prefer That's The Way, I have to say, which I regard as just one of the finest folk ballads that, I mean, Tangerine Dream, sorry, Tangerine isn't um, isn't a folk ballad. That's The Way is a, is a folk ballad and it's one of the best they ever did as far as I'm concerned. Written after a, a long walk through the woods, written up at um, Bronyal Cottage um, up in Mid Wales. And, and it has got that kind of, sat in front of the fireplace feel to it. It's just so, you know, they've, they've come back and they, you can you can imagine him writing this. I mean, you really can. It's such an evocative album when you hear some of the stories about where they were writing this stuff. And I've got that with this. I can I can almost see him writing this, you know. It's just so chilled. Such a mellow piece of work. It's apparently going to be called The Boy Next Door, um, an examination of um, friendships and appearances, I do believe. And I wonder if it was autobiographical, perhaps. But a beautiful piece. Yeah, it's beautiful. Beautiful song. That's the way is one of the seeds for four and for the you know the Battle of Evermore. That's where I see the link between these two albums. And that's the way goes into Bronyor Stomp, which is the the, th- the third of the three songs. There was Friends and That's Your Way and Bronyor Stomp, which is the third of the three songs that were written at Bronyor Cottage near um, Bacunless. Though interestingly, and this is this is the sub editor in me, I, I find this quite offensive. The song name is actually a misspelling of the actual cottage, which should have an R in the middle of it. So they've called it Bronyor Stump. It should be Bronyor Stump or whatever. Anyway, it's basically a hoedown uh, in which Plant sings about taking his dog for a walk in the woods. Uh, it's, it's not complex. Great song. Absolutely no relation to Bronyor or physical graffiti. Just a whole load of funness. Love the offbeats. Love the hand claps. Love the changes in pace. Love some of the run-outs from Paige and Jones dropping bass. And that reintroduction to the stomp at the end is ah, oh, it's to die for. It's a fantastic song. If you don't love John Bonham by the end of this quirky little folk number, you've got a cold, dead heart. It started off called um, Jennings Farm Blues. Oh, that's right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because uh, it was originally, I think it started out as an electric, you know, a song for an electric guitar. And then... It was rearranged during that holiday to Bronior for, by uh, Page and Plant in 1970. Because yeah, the beat reverses. I mean, in all the little fills, uh, it's constantly changing back and forth. So, what, what, whatever beat you're on, <laughs> it, it, it changes again. Very, very clever. Okay. And we sign off with Mark. Do you want to introduce this? Because uh, this is my tangerine moment, and I'm going to wax lyrical in, in about 30 seconds. So do you want to talk us through hats off to open brackets, Roy, close brackets, Harper? Yeah. Okay, so the, this is the, the final track on the album, and it's the one that I personally am least bothered by on the album. On When you first hear it, you think it's a kind of a down-home, old country number. But actually, when you listen to it forensically, what you realise is that this is actually a collection of musical experiments. It's a collage of sounds. There's some mad slide guitar work by Jimmy Page. You've got Plant's voice, which is apparently fed through the tremolo channel of an old Vox amp. And that means, for me, it jars a bit with everything that's gone before. But you know what? In the end, Zeppelin were arch innovators, weren't they? So most of what we all really love about this band comes from stuff like this. So who am I to argue with it? 
if it was part of what led the band to the next album, then I'm grateful for it. But I definitely do lift the needle on this one, Steve, I'm afraid. Wow. It's a song that I think only a mother could love, and I'm sure Jimmy does. <laughs> Richard? Yeah, I'm afraid I'm with Mark on this one. <sighs> I listened to it as a demo, as an experiment. It does feel like it's been it, it, it's added on as a, oh, here's one we mucked around with in the studio. But they stuck it on the album. I mean, we had, we had a similar conversation about bits of physical graffiti, I think, as well. Mm. Um, and, and to me, it's um, it's in that camp. See, for the handful of people who don't know this song, I mean, it's, it's what Mark said. It's basically a sort of spiritual blues number. It's kind of straightforward to a degree in as much as the, the, the arrangement of the song is. And, yeah, Mark's right. There's loads of sort of slide guitar. And I don't have a problem with any of that. And the, But it's the left field bit for me is, is, as you say, Plant's voice being distorted through that vibrato amplifier. And suddenly this very simple blues track is elevated beyond measure in my opinion and and if that sounds like hyperbole well i don't actually care because I, I just think it is there's there's one bit in there when when robert plant holds a note going through that amplifier it is phenomenal it's just a beautiful and it does sound distorted i've got my imagination has been running right and i was thinking it's like they've almost tried to capture the sound of a sort of bad recording done in the in the 1930s on an old 78, on a busted-up gramophone of a blues song being sung in some front room somewhere in the deep south. And if and, and if it had a few crackles and spits on it, that would have finished the job for me. It would have been perfect. I think it's a seriously special song. I really do. <laughs> I just adore it. It shouldn't work, but for me, it absolutely does. <laughs> all, of which, all of which proves, as we have proven for the last year, that all of our ears are different. And that's great, isn't it? Because because the the reality is that the Zeppelin can touch people yeah. with everything that they do. Yeah. It's not just about yeah, and, and for all of my criticism or for all of our criticism of physical graffiti, the one thing that I absolutely do applaud about that album is they tried stuff yeah. and, and they were the only band that were. So yeah, I've got no problem. Uh, you'll be pleased to hear, Steve, I've got no problem with the fact you love this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not. But you know, frankly, I, I, I hearing it once, it was interesting. Don't need mm-hmm. to hear it again. That's mm-hmm. that's how I feel about it. Yeah. Well, I'm going to catalogue their varied. Will um, will evince those kind of um, reactions, won't they? No doubt about it. Yeah. Um, should we do some highs and lows then? What um, what are we thinking, Richard? So, not surprisingly, hats off to Roy Harper's my not so high, and it's got to be Gallows Paul. It's got to be Gallows Paul. Yeah, I'm with Richard on the low or the the not so high, and yeah, it's it could so easily be have been Gallows Pole if only they hadn't recorded Tangerine. <laughs> okay, um, not so high for me is um, Out on the Tiles, and high, yeah, high. It's it's come on down, Roy. It just is. It's um, it's half top hats off to that final song. So that's where we are with Led Zeppelin 3. I fancy this is going to score well, boys. I fancy this is going to score very well. Let's move on to our second three albums and fast forward seven years and talk Foreigner. Richard. Opening album sleep. You're as cold as ice. You're willing to sacrifice our love. Yeah. 
Yes, the first appearance of these guys on our list, on our pod. A little bit of history. So they were formed in 1976, New York City, by a guy called Mick Jones, uh, an Englishman stranded in uh, in New York after the breakup of uh, some of his previous bands. Went about uh, writing and uh, seeing if he could uh, pull something else together. Sent a cassette to uh, Atlantic that was picked up by uh, John Kolodner on the strength yeah on the strength of this demo tape were signed basically and in rehearsals through 1976 then recorded late in that year and uh, mixed early in 77 and foreigners debut was released on March the 8th it's a shade under 39 minutes in length and features say three brits three yanks band so called because i guess of the three bit Brits in America. So uh, Lou Graham on lead vocals, percussion, Mick Jones, lead guitar, backing vocals, lead vocals on a couple of tracks and keyboards, him and old guitar, backing vocals, sax, keyboards, flute, and everything else. Uh, Al Greenwood on keyboards and synths, uh, Ed Gagliardi on bass and backing vocals, and Dennis Elliott on drums and backing vocals. It reached gold in a few months. And then stayed in the in the Billboard for for well over a year. Well, not just the Billboard, stayed in the Billboard top twenty for for just over a year, and uh, ended up reaching sales of over five times platinum. Didn't do much in the UK. They they foreign weren't really big in the UK probably until their fourth album. First three, I guess, sold okay, but but certainly not anything to to trouble the the UK charts massively. It was recorded in the Hit Factory and then an aborted attempt to mix at Sam Studios. It meant it was then properly remixed uh, in uh, the Atlantic Zone recording studios in New York. Track-wise, it's got uh, five on each side. Uh, side one feels like the first time, Cold as Ice, Star Rider, Head Knocker, and The Damage is Done. And side two is a long, long way from home, Woman, Oh Woman. At war with the world, fool, fool for you anyway, and I need you. So I hadn't heard this album all the way through. I knew quite a few tracks off it, but it's been a thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyable listen. Uh, how about you two, Steve? Well, it's not just me then. Brilliant. I thought you'd like it. I thought I'd just, you're the king of AOR. I thought you'd love it. I must be getting soppy in my old age because I, I love this. I think it's absolutely brilliant. I love the musicianship. Um, I love the songwriting. Love Lou Graham's voice, um, which I kind of was aware of because of, you know, hit singles, which reminds me, if your only knowledge of Foreigner, by the way, is I want to know what love is, then just erase that from your mind because thankfully there's nothing on here like that. Absolutely nothing. Thank the Lord. I don't think I was expecting it to be quite this sophisticated. I don't think I was expecting. I think that's probably damage caused by. Um, I want to know what love is. But yeah, it really is. It's it's kind of refined. So much stuff going on. And it's all good stuff. So pleased you picked it. So I've had a, I've had a really good week listening to it. Thoroughly enjoyed it, Mark. Okay. Um. Well, I don't know what I'm missing, other than the first couple of tracks. I just thought this was really limp. An insipid. I thought. I thought it was a, just had very little going for it from sort of track three onwards, and I must be missing something. I can only think that people bought this on the strength of of the singles. That feels like the first time, which is I grant you an absolutely towering piece of work, and Cold as Ice, which I, I'm 
I've never really been much of a fan of, but I see what it reminds me of. It reminds me a bit of Boston. You know, when you're left thinking, well, where the hell do they go after more than a feeling? But in the case of Boston, the album, which remarkably I discovered was outsold by this to begin with, it at least had a pretty solid and stellar first half, even if it tailed off at the back end. And I just, I don't get it. I don't get this album. I just don't understand why it's so successful, but it's probably my ears. (laughs) Flaccid is the word. Wow. (laughs) Right. We'd better analyse this in more depth, hadn't we? And it starts, it starts with uh, a track that, uh, Mick Jones wrote about getting married, apparently. Big start, full sound. I think throughout this album, including this opening track, it's beautifully arranged and layered in how they bring different sounds in, into this. Drums there, solid bass line, these soaring keyboards over the top of it. And then, it, as you say, an, an introduction to, my goodness, how Lou Graham can sing. Uh, and his, his, his song just, his voice just lifts and lifts and lifts and lifts. You mentioned Boston. I mean, this is one of those real uplifting first tracks, isn't it? Yeah, I'll give you that. I think this is a great song. Really do. Graham apparently nailed this on the first take um, for the demo tape that they sent out to the record companies. And he'd only heard it once when Mick Jones sang it to him. And he was given 30 minutes to learn it, banged it out. And um, they didn't feel that they needed to do anything else to it. I, I think this is a really cracking song, actually. It's got a cracking chorus. The instrumentation is rich and velvety, which I guess is a long way from the original mix that Lyons and Sinclair originally came up with, um, because that was, I think it was remixed by Jones and McDonald back in New York along with the rest of the album. Uh, There's there's a very odd break in the middle of the song where it all goes a bit new wavy electronica. Mm. But then the chorus kicks back in and I kind of forget about it and it's fine. So yeah, this is a pretty good, pretty cool song. I like this. Yeah, like, like that keyboard's okay. It works with it, I think. It doesn't work against it. Isn't it? It's not, it doesn't compromise the song in any way. It's just got happy no. written all over it, this song. Big corporate, car roof down, sun's out, crowd pleaser. And don't take my word for that. That's exactly what Mick Jones said, and I quote, I was driving to Long Island to go to the sea when this song came on. I was on the bridge, and in my mirror you could see the big city. On the radio said there's a new band and they have a great song, which we will play now, and that was my song. I turned the car window down and I started to drive fast. I'll never forget that moment. You wouldn't, would you? I think it's fantastic. Great song. Okay, let's move on to to track two, which is one of the other singles from this album, which is Cold as Ice. I think this is one of those timeless songs. I was thinking, counting back over the years, this is 44 years old. The echoes from the drums and the bass, the vocal harmonies on this are just absolutely superb i don't like this song as much as feels like the first time and i'm with you rich it's very cleverly layered so much going on and it builds and it falls and it falls and it builds guitar solo some dramatic pauses all back into that kind of piano guitar riff at the end um it's a really really good song prefer the opener but nothing on with cold as ice it's interesting isn't it i love the way things come full circle because the only reason that lou graham was available for to join foreigner was that Black Sheep, his band, their van had skidded and crashed on some ice uh, and all of the gear was wrecked, as was the van. And, of course, it was only when I was reading that that I remembered that this is the band that went out on tour with Kiss or was supposed to go out on tour with Kiss. Okay. That's that Black Sheep. So um, it's all, it all links back in. 
Cold as Ice for me is just a song that is, I, I like it, you know, I don't dislike it. I don't dislike this album. I just, I just think it's, it struggles to get above mediocre, but Cold as Ice is just, oh, if I never hear it again, I won't be poorer. Um, <laughs> some of the guitar phrasing on it, just feels like it's a relic from the early 70s. I was getting overtones of the theme from The Persuaders. And for our American friends, that's a British TV show starring a pre-James Bond, Roger Moore and Tony Curtis. It's a solid song and perfectly good. I just don't need to hear it again. Well, let's move on to track three, which is a track where I thought, why haven't I heard this before? Track three is Star Rider. Um, This is proper prog rock from, from Foreigner. I mean, it's sort of folksy, it's proggy, it's 60s. I think it's a really soaring, soaring track. And I mean, it's only four minutes, but it's it's epic. It's absolutely epic. I love this track. Couldn't agree more, Rich. Should we just stick him on mute and, and talk to each other, yeah? Because I'm, I'm with you on this. <laughs> love the flute. The flute is back. The flute is heavy metal, as we well know now. Ando, Ando says so. Um, and the keyboard's majored here. Indeed, it's co-written by Al Greenwood, isn't it? And I saw a, a really lovely interview with Greenwood about, um, and he described himself as the colouring that adds a little extra dimension to the whole. That's his role as the as the keyboard and, and synth player. I think he wanted to be more front and centre, but he doesn't need. I mean, on this on this song, he, he absolutely is, and I think everything he does throughout the album is perfectly perfectly balanced. Influenced by Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, perhaps. But this is a song that stuck in my head all week in a good in a very good way and i hadn't heard it before it's better than stargazer not as good as starstruck <laughs> okay ponderous overblown truly labored harmony scaling on the chorus um there was a there was a school band that i used to follow when i when i was at Alain's in stevenage called wilmot langenkopf and they wrote a song called dirty old man that had a lyric um that was um, hello, little girl, want a sweetie. There's one in my trouser pocket. Get it out for me, please. And I think that was a better lyric than anything on this. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, what is this nonsense? Oh, come on. This is proper soaring prog. Yeah. You can't use the word overblown as a negative in this context, Mark. This is exactly what this is. And it's perfect. Well, given, given the album we're about to review... Yeah, but it's but (laughs) but yeah, but it's cleverer and better. (laughs) Okay, well, um, let's move on, shall we? Track four, side one, is uh, head knocker. So after some prog, uh, some pretty much more straight ahead rock from Foreigner here. Um, I mean, it's bluesy. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, I mean, nice dual guitars. I mean, not. Not a patch on the previous three tracks for me. It's okay. This almost ruins the record, <laughs> which is a bit overdoing it. It's not for me, this at all. I've spent a lifetime listening to hard rock and heavy metal to protect me from stuff like this. It's just, it's just not for me. I've got, I've written down four words. Um, Chas and Dave, anyone? <laughs> <laughs> That's all I've got. Okay, let's move on. I don't there's much we can say about that. Yeah, it's a bit of a misstep, isn't it? Okay, yeah. move on to track five on, on side one. Uh, the closer, which uh, is called The Damage Is Done. And again, for me, The Damage Is Done is a bit proggy. I mean, the clavinets, 12-string guitars on it. 
Uh, I think it's wonderfully layered. And whilst it's a slower end to the side, it's uh, another track I've really, really enjoyed off of this album. I think it's absolutely fantastic. You know, it's quite a lumbering start, isn't it? And But then you get some beef and that lovely little interlude into yet another all-too-brief guitar solo. There's a number of tracks on here where we're not quite getting big enough guitar solos for me. Mm. It's just a guitar soloist in me. I'd lo- love to hear a bit more. And we, we get a couple of good ones further down the line. Quite a super tramp. Yes, yeah, all right. This gets, this gets better as it goes on, actually. I kind of feared the worst when it started, but... Uh, yeah, it's it's a perfectly good song. I think my issue with this album is it just for me, and you're you, you probably well, no, I know you're going to disagree, but I, I just think it lacks imagination. I think it's just really sub journey, uh, and it doesn't ever rise above that for me. Like I say, I don't actively dislike the album, but it's just it's all right. Mm. It's all right. I, th- I think we we'll all we all have these albums that leave us a bit cold. What I've enjoyed about this is. I didn't realise how you know, more towards progressive Foreigner were. Hmm. Uh, the, the complexity of the arrangements, uh, that's what's really surprised me. You know what? That that might be the issue for me. You two are the prog boys. I'm not. I don't really get it. Well, let's start side two then with something that hopefully is a, a little bit more rocky, which is long, long way from home. So this is about being in New York City, um, I'm presuming a, a long way from the UK, this, again, is classic around how they're using these different sounds, so the clavinet and the saxophone, to provide this extra percussion paired with the bass all the way through uh, the verses. And then McDonald, you know, d- doing his turn on the sax, not not just the sort of honks through the verses, but an absolutely brilliant solo. Yeah, I think I think it's brilliant. I love all that sax in there. I just think it's another addition, another layer, isn't it? And um presume that's the part that McDonald wrote. Yeah, I love the guitar, the bass line, the keyboards. Graham's voice at his best. Good stuff. Good, good stuff. I really like this. I, you know, this this is kind of like early glam rock, isn't it? Or or sort of late, early 70s glam rock. It's like a hybrid between the two. I really like it. Crunching guitars, nice swinging sax, you know, nice trashy drum beat. Yeah, I, I think this is good. I like this. Right, well, let's uh, move on then, shall we, to, uh, to track seven, track two, side two, which is Woman, O oh, Woman. So this is you know, slower, a lot lighter, a very keyboard-driven song. It's a very pleasant song. This is the one. This is the one. It's, and I keep playing it, and I keep playing it to see what I've got wrong, <laughs> and I haven't. And, I, and, it just, and it just improves every time I play I think it's absolutely superb. Um, I'm getting a lot of wings here. Do you not think that Joan sounds a bit like Macca when he sings? And again, it's another one of those composite vocal performances where Joan sings the, the verse and then when they need to go big, bring in the main man to do the chorus. I just think this is stunning. I really do. There's some beautiful little keyboard runs in here. Everything about this song is clever and well-written, you know. Listen to this track, for example, through Dennis Elliott's drums. We've not talked about Dennis Elliott's mm. drums. He's not a timekeeper. It's a proper old school drummer, you know. Ah, oh, grows on me, continues to grow on me. This and it, and it will be scored accordingly. I think I, this it's a, one of those real pleasant moments. Yes, all right. <laughs> it's, no, I, it's all right. I, li- I like it. It's all right. I, it doesn't. I don't. Um, it doesn't make me fall off my chair. But I think it's a perfectly decent, you know, listenable tune. Nice melody. 
nice little piano runs in it. So, yeah, it's, there's nothing wrong with this. Inoffensive, then? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think it's it, it's a bit more than it. It's a, it's a bit better than inoffensive. Uh, you know, would I play this song again? No, I probably wouldn't. If But I, I'd quite... If it came on the, the radio, I'd be quite happy to hear it. God, I, I think you're missing a trick. I love it. I love when Mick Jones is, does those little guitar runs and, it, and then brings Graham in singing the chorus. Steve, They're just talking to Steve, each other. Steve, 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 Steve. There are seven songs coming up that you don't get. <laughs> don't tell me I don't get one. <laughs> oh, don't. <laughs> right. Well, let's um, chase our way towards those seven. And the most interesting part of the show will be <laughs> up shortly. Uh, a couple more left on, uh, sorry, three more left on uh, on Foreigner's debut. And uh, we move on with track eight, which uh, is at war with the world. So more mid-paced, slightly rockier, really driven by the guitars and, and an organ, brilliantly layered again. And you can hear all of the the bits on this album for me that become the aspects of the foreigner sound that you hear on all of the subsequent albums. And again, this is another one. I mean, you, you, it was almost the uh, embryo of urgent and, and songs like that on, on this song. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I like this war with the world's uh, track eight. Yeah, no, I'll echo that. It started off. I was kind of fearing it was going to turn into some sort of kind of jazz funk fusion nightmare but not a bit of it what i love is about a minute in when you after the first verse when you get that lovely sort of haunting keyboard behind the guitar lick and the drum roll and then graham sings what does he sing i'm at war with the world harmonies kick in and just wanders around one of the better jones solos in this love the backing vocals as it fades out all those layers that you were talking about rich that mark just doesn't appreciate they're so evident in a song like this yeah i really like this too I think this is a really, really good song. It's my second favourite on the album. I think this is excellent. And I do get the layers in this, and I appreciate them. The one thing I will give you is, is I think the vocals on all of this album, whether it's Mick Jones or Lou Graham, are, you know, top class, actually. They, you know, fantastic vocal performance throughout. Okay, let's move on to track nine, which is Fool For You Anyway. So again, we go a bit slower, and this is mellow, real late night. I feel like, I mean, it's quite sort of southern in style, isn't it? Like Woman, Oh Woman, it's a nice song. It's very pleasant, relaxing. Doesn't do as much for me as others on the album. Feel it's, the album sort of, feel, feel it's starting to wind down a bit with this song. Can't even, you can't even mention it in the same breath as Woman, Oh Woman. This <laughs> is... Um... This just this does doesn't really do it for me at all. It's it's chilled and it's not a bad vibe, but um, I'm kind of hoping for it to pick up and it never really does. Some good harmonies, but it's just kind of okay, really. I mean, who'd have thought another power ballad? These guys are good at them, <laughs> aren't they? This is what I mean when I say I don't dislike this, but it's just so average. I was really quite excited because I didn't know much foreigner at all before um, you picked this, Richard. So I, I didn't come to this with any sort of preconceptions or baggage. And I was expecting it to be really much more... Inve- and, and you're telling me it is inventive and I don't hear it, so maybe it's me. But I expected it to be more inventive than it is. And it just it feels like every time they've had a choice between playing percentages, 
and taking a risk. They've played the percentages. I get it. It's a debut album, fair enough. But this is a really good example of where it's got an open goal and it and it skies it. I would agree with you on this track. I think for this this, this track, guilty as charged. But uh, some others on this album, they 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 really have have nailed it. Well, we've got one left, uh, and uh, track ten is "I Need You," another clavinet-driven number. Steve earlier mentioned Dennis Elliott. He really comes into his own on this. Uh, some fantastic fills and great drumming throughout this. And actually, it finishes off with, yeah, it's still a bit mid-paced or mid-slow pace, isn't it? But it's got a good groove. And I think it's a decent, not one of the highs on the album, but it's a decent outro. And I think it would have uh, left those who've discovered them thinking, right, hmm, I wonder what they're going to come up with next. Um, which is pretty much always what you want, isn't it? I'd have thought from your final track. I think this is a peach, absolute peach. Um, love the intro with that sort of, as you say, Dennis Elliott sort of snap, crack, drum work, which goes here, there and everywhere. It's great, great drumming. This is what I've been waiting for, a chance for Mick Jones to flex those fingers. Really good solo in it over a really wonderfully kind of melancholy backbeat. Yeah, no, I think it's a fantastic closer. Love the backing vocals again. They're always really good on this. Love Graham's plaintive voice. He pours his emotion into that finish. I think it's really interesting, Steve, that you just said, I've been waiting for this. I've been waiting for Mick Jones to flex his finger muscles or whatever. There you are, in a nutshell. If you've had to wait for that, you know what I mean? It's just, yeah, that, that's the whole point. You know, you, there's stuff that you hear in this song, which I think is a, is, is a very decent song. There's there's stuff happening in here that we've waited for nine, well, eight, because it was all in, it was all in um, Feels Like the First Time. But uh, yeah, I've waited eight eight songs for this. He's teased. He's teased, and he's tantalised, and he's been. He, he's been there. I'm. I'm. I've just. I've got more creativity through this album than you have. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. There we go. That's uh, that's Foreigner's debut. Uh, we better do some highs and lows. Mark, do you want to start? Yeah, the low is well. They're both easy actually. The low is Star Rider, and the high is feels like the first time. Steve. Yeah. So the low for me is Head Knocker. Um, by quite some distance. Uh, I've got a three-way tie. I'll go with um, Woman, Oh Woman. Actually, I'll change my mind. You're right, Head Knocker was worse. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Well, that's good because we're agreed on one thing about this album. <laughs> uh, that Head Knocker is, uh, is the weakest track. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. And now, uh, Star Rider. Star Rider every day. What a soaring, brilliant piece of rock music. There we go, Foreigner, the second of our multi-million sellers and we now move on to uh, the third album which sold if I'm getting this right about three times as much as the other two put together uh, moved slightly later in 1977 and that album that pretty much everybody apart from Steve has got in their collection Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell Mark Opening album sleep.
glass house of hell. Now, the one thing that you can't accuse this album of is being overblown and pretentious. <laughs> because this, my friends, is a work of art with a fascinating backstory, some sumptuous tunes. Not all of them great, I'll admit, but I think it's, I think, in, well, I was going to say it's the most interesting of the three. Actually, Zeppelin is more interesting in many ways, but um, this is the, phew, I mean, talk about monumental albums. This is one of the biggest selling albums of all time. Foreigner, do you know, Foreigner didn't chart in the UK. This spent 522 weeks on the UK chart. That's how big this album is. Just go through uh, a few of the little basic um, information about it. And the first thing to say is it's one of those Beatles moments. This was rejected by nine major record labels. How they must be crying. How they must be crying. The amount of money they lost by being stupid. Stupid, I tell you. Okay, so uh, the artist is Meatloaf. Well, it's not really. This is a Jim Steinman album. Meatloaf is a mere tool in the delivery of Bat Out of Hell. This is this is basically, well, I was gonna say it's it's Jim Steinman. It's 90, 85, 90% Jim Steinman, it's five percent uh, meatloaf, and it's five or ten percent Todd Rundgren. It was released on October the twenty-first, nineteen seventy-seven. It was recorded, an age to record, between nineteen seventy-five to nineteen seventy-six. They were signed to eventually uh, a guy called Steve Popovich, who was the chairman of an independent record label called Cleveland International, heard you took the words right out of my mouth and signed them on the basis of that. Runs to 46 minutes and 25 seconds, recorded at Bearsville Studio, New York. Let's talk about the people involved in this, shall we? Um, Because this is not your average band. There are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Well, 16 members uh, of the performing cast on this album. And that's not to count the individual members of the New York Philharmonic and Philadelphia orchestras who also played on it. Um, the main characters, Meatloaf on lead vocals, backing vocals uh, and percussion, Todd Rundgren on guitars, percussion, keyboards and backing vocals, and the incomparable Jim Steinman on keyboards, percussion, spoken word, and he is also credited with lascivious effects. So there you go. It uh, runs to seven, just seven tracks. Slide uh, one, Bad Out of Hell, You Took the Words Right Out of My Mouth, Hot Summer Night, uh, Heaven Can Wait and All Revved Up and No Place to Go, and then Slide Two, Two Out of Three Ain't Bad, Paradise by the Dashboard Light. And for crying out loud, it, as I say, reached number nine in the UK, 522 weeks on the chart, the longest, third longest charting album in UK history behind Rumours and Steve Dark Side of the Moon. Um, its highest US chart position was 14. It's officially sold 22 million, but now thought to be closer to 35. So there you go. That is the basic information you need about Bat Out of Hell. Tell me how much you loved it, Steve. I'm, I'm with the eight record companies who said, nah. What did you say? There were 16 musicians on this, two of whom were from the E Street Band. Yeah. Just saying. Just saying. Anyway, where to start on this? I think I understand 
why no check that i know i understand why you both feel that this epic i hate to use the word but it is should be included in our deliberations because it is worthy of consideration it's just one of those albums everyone it's just one of those albums he's one of those figures the title track as you said is a rock song of sorts but it is in the pantheon of rock songs i absolutely get all that do I like this album? Nah, I don't. I absolutely don't. I, I don't dislike it. it. It just simply leaves me cold. Stone, frozen cold. I don't get a single positive vibe. I don't get what you're getting. But then you're, you are, you're, you're, an, you're an actor. You're a thesp. And, and, I, and I know what you're seeing in this. I know a lot of what you're seeing in this. And I go back to uh, Warfare and Hammer Horror. Three songs on here. Of, and that wasn't an insult. You know what I mean? You no, get that. I know. Yeah. Three songs on here I have overheard, and that's not their fault. It just it, it just is what it is. And, and anyway, we've reviewed other tracks in this pod which have been overplayed, and I still love them. These three, the title track, took the words two out of three. I don't ever need to hear those three again. Never. Well, all right, that's a bit unfair on Bat Out of Hell. But certainly the other two, I just don't, and I don't need 10 minutes of Bat Out of Hell either. But I, and I don't need to listen to the other two at all. Midway through this album, it dawned on me. I started thinking cruise liner. This is cabaret night on a cruise ship. Some washed up old West End has-been crooner trying to make a few bob before retirement. And I'm not talking about premium Fred Olsen cruises around the Caribbean. This bloke's doing bat out of hell on the Ramsgate to Rotterdam and back. That's where we are with Bat Out of Hell. It's just not for me. It's not a rock album in any conventional sense of the phrase that I understand. I know the rock church is a broad one, but this one's stuck outside in a porch. Richard? It's interesting, Steve, mentions uh, Hammer Horror and Warfare, isn't it? You're absolutely right about the, the thespian piece. This is musical theatre. Yeah. This, is, this is rock theatre. I mean, it's hilarious, isn't it, that finally... They made a musical out of Bat Out of Hell. Yeah. <laughs> it took them, I, don't know, I don't know how many decades. You have to stick your tongue firmly in your cheek and, and enjoy it. What, what do we say about Spinal Tap? This is an album that is there to entertain. And you have to put yourself in the mindset to, to be entertained. Yeah, I think I think you've nailed that, Richard. That's exactly what it is. And Rundgren only did it because he said it was the most bonkers idea he's ever heard in his life. And he said I absolutely had to do it because it was just it was just crazy, crazy idea. Um, so shall we shall we give this a listen, Steve? We'll we'll put you through it one more time, and then you can leave it behind forever. <laughs> it opens with the title track "Bad Out of Hell." You only have to hear the first two power chords, and you know exactly what you're listening to. Those two power chords, by the way, are lifted from Jailhouse Rock. They're exactly the same as the start of Jailhouse Rock, a variation of which Steinman was working on with Meatloaf for a production uh, of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Now, the only, I mean, apart from the fact that, you know, it's it's theatrical and thespian and all the rest of it and all the other stuff that we've said, I think the really interesting thing about this is that when the song was complete, it had a very quiet section in the middle of it, and it was a sequence where... Jim Steinman had asked to hear a motorcycle effect. But when Rundgren played it for him, the, the effect was missing. And Steinman, who always said he behaved, he, Steinman, behaved like a four-year-old around 
what he described as the cleverer and paternal figure of Todd Rundgren, started whining that he wanted to hear the motorcycle. And the way he tells it, Rundgren was like, oh, you want a motorcycle? You don't have enough already. A thousand backing vocals, a million guitar solos, a 10-minute song, but no, you want a motorcycle. At which point, Starman's like, well, do you have a motorcycle sound effect? You told me I could have a, sound, a motorcycle. And Rundgren looks at him and goes, I don't work in sound effects. I'll do it on the guitar. Um, and he walked over to his guitar rack and he goes, now, what do you want? A Kawasaki, a Harley Davidson, a Yamaha? And then he proceeded to do the, that, um, what you think is a motorcycle, or at least I always thought was a motorcycle effect, in the middle of the song, did it in one take, and you can hear the, yeah, it's an amazing piece of guitar work. Whatever else you think about the song, it's an amazing piece of guitar work because you can hear it rev, you can hear the fire belching from it, you can hear it do a wheelie, and it was all done in one take. And for me, that's just the most awesome moment on the record, whatever else you think about the song. There you go. Fucking hell. Haven't heard of this animator since you bought Shout of the Devil. Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to say. I just don't know what to say. It's one. It's what. There's bits of this song I like. <laughs> I just don't know what to say. <laughs> it's, it is one of those songs where you feel compelled to like it, almost under pressure to like it because of the majesty of the sodding thing. It, it's such a big, big song in in so many ways. Undeniably ambitious. The whole album's undeniably ambitious. I just, I just can't quite get to analyse this with any degree of seriousness. I, I've got no great. It's drags. It's far too fucking long. I mean, let's not. You know, it should be half the length. But interestingly, some of the better things are a bit later on. Bizarrely, they could have just compressed the whole bloody thing. Best track, best bit of the track for me is that there's a little Todd Rundgren solo at about the six and a half hour mark, um, <laughs> which is, you know, which is good, but. Yeah, too long. Way too long. You do, yeah. As you said, you've just said you've got to bathe in this. I mean, this is this is majestic. This is the majesty of rock. I think it's brilliantly arranged. It uh, the way it sort of rises and falls and stops and starts and tells this story. Yeah, it's a pretty preposterous story, but there's so much going on. Yeah, sixteen or however many musicians were playing on this. It never sounds crowded. So it's really, really cleverly put together. It still put a smile on my face this last week. I mean, we could spend the whole album talking about this, and we probably shouldn't. We should probably get the next one out of your way, out of your way, Steve, because that—that uh, that is, you took the words right out of my mouth. Brackets on a hot summer night. Close brackets. Um, yeah, this is going to make you laugh, Steve, because this is this is a kind of a a level of preposterous that you didn't even think this album could go to, right? The, the spoken word intro to uh, You Took the Words Run Out of My Mouth. Do you know what that was originally intended for? It was actually written by Steinman, who was working on an adaptation of uh, something called Neverland, an ad- a musical adaptation of Peter Pan. And he wrote this as the wedding vow for Peter and Wendy. Musically, it's another lift, um, this time from The Who. The opening power chords are an homage to the start of uh, I think my generation won't get fooled again, and Barbara O'Reilly. So it's a who ripoff, uh, and this, and then, and this is where I think Jim Steinman is fairly clever, or or mad, depending on your viewpoint. By his own admission, he takes a fairly typical Phil Spector piano run full of bells and chimes that together 
with the lyrics give this song. I think there's sort of a brilliantly schizophrenic sense of yearning. And actually, I think it's possibly, and you'll, uh, I can, I know you're going to dissolve into laughter here, Steve, but it's a really evocative song because I think it captures perfectly those moments as a teenager in your early 20s where you fancy so much, someone so much, that you physically ache. I get all of that out of this. So I love this song. But it's cheese. It's plus de fromage. Oh, I, I love it too. It just makes me smile again. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is, that, I mean, it, is that, it is that spectre wall of sound, isn't it? I was 11 and 12 and when I first listened to this. Um, and it, I, it takes me back. The, particularly this song takes me back to that time. Steve, where does it take you back to? I just, I just wish I could just take it away. Please. It's, um, it's a pop song. Let's not even, I mean, I have to program it now for 48 seconds so that I can miss out on that diabolical start, uh, which is matched by the diabolical ending, which is truly annoying. It's to, listen, it's a tune I know so well, and I don't. I'm not particularly fond of it. And yeah, it's it's a pop song. It's a pop song. That's all it is, and it and it's not floating my boat. You know, right now, just right now, I'm ready for a bit of Earth Crisis or something. You know, I just I just need to um, I just need some action. <laughs> and the next and the next song ain't gonna cut it. Well, presumably not only heaven can wait, but this song can wait for you. Um, track three. Um, the opening themed on, according to Steinman, on the sound of a musical box. That's what he wanted to create. It was another song that was written for Steinman's Neverland project, intended as a solo for the Wendy character after she marries Peter. And again, it's got a lovely piano line running through it. I mean, whatever you say about him, Steinman was, a, I think, a you know, fantastic songwriter. You might not like the songs, but technically brilliant songwriter. And, you know, we're recording this at a time not long after, you know, he's uh, departed the world. Um, lyrically fairly straightforward, although I suppose it makes a lot more sense if you consider it as a song about the state of bliss that Wendy finds herself in after marrying Peter Pan. It makes, you know, if, if that can make sense on any level anyway, but there you go. Um, for me, it's a nice tune done well, not a highlight of the album. This is a song I've never got on with. I think it was the B-side to um, the Bat Out of Hell single uh, in, in the UK. Um, they managed to edit Bat Out of Hell down to, I think, about six minutes to fit it on a, on a 45. And I, m- I remember a friend of mine getting Bat Out of Hell as a single and running around to his house and playing it. And we were just amazed by it. And then we said, turn it over, turn it over. And we put the B-side on and it was this. And we went, yeah, no. Oh. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of how I still feel about this. Okay, well, let's move on to uh, something that's a little bit rockier. And uh, if you if you were lamenting the uh, durations of some of these tracks, Steve, then thank God for Todd Rundgren, because this was originally 14 minutes long. According to Steinman, it started off very slow and tense and then kind of mutated into a frenetic sort of organised chaos that was supposed to, in his words, represent the various stages of a kid growing up, desperate to get started in his life, but having nowhere to go. As fate and probably luck would have it, Steinman came down with a virus 
during the recording of the record and was so ill he couldn't get out of bed. So he spent several days laid up in this flat in Woodstock while Meatloaf and Rundgren carried on recording and editing the material, namely and primarily this song. And one, one afternoon, apparently, Meatloaf burst into the flat where Steinman was and starts manhandling him out of bed, insisting he comes to the studio because Rundgren's ruining the song um, by shortening it. And according to Steinman, his and Meatloaf's musical sensibilities were very closely aligned. So they both favoured big, epic soundscapes, which is nothing if not obvious on this album, I should say, though less so on the follow-up, actually, Dead Ringer. Anyway, Rundgren, on the other hand, was slightly more pragmatic and commercially aware and savvy, and he insisted that some songs were just songs and didn't need to be big and epic. Um, Steinman says nothing on the record, on the track, was changed musically. In other words, everything you hear was in the original long version, but Rundgren just arranged it and telescoped it in such a way to make it more streamlined and uh, about nine minutes shorter. And Steinman, to his credit, said that the song was much better for being shortened by Rundgren. There you go. That is all revved up with no place to go. Bloody hell, you've done your own work, haven't you? Jesus. It's all right. <laughs> it's, um, it's not the worst song on air. I'll tell you what. Kazim Sultan can play the bass guitar. I'll say that for nothing. Um, and, he, and he does it on here. And I, and I like the sax playing of Edgar Winter. But I like those as, as you know, as musician skill, musicianship skill sets. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean I like the song at all. Because um, uh, I don't, really, particularly. It's not the worst song on here, but that's not saying an awful lot. It, as it, and again, it's another pop song. Uh, it's, oh, I think this qualifies as rock. It's got a good thump, but I, I, I like the movements on it. I, I particularly like the the middle section, sort of more groovy section, and then of course the the fast finish. Again, this brings back memories of singing it as a teenager and trying to keep up. Let's turn the record over. Um, I think we can dispatch with two of the songs on this side reasonably quickly because there's only one superstar on this side of the album, that's for sure. So the first of the ones that we can probably dispatch quite quickly is the first song on side two, which is yet another ballad, uh, which is actually a twist on an old and not particularly well-known Elvis Presley song. Steinman started writing it at the time that they were having problems getting the album accepted by a record label and he was moaning about this to a friend who said well all of the songs is way too complicated why don't you just write something simple um and at the time they were listening to old oldies radio station which was playing uh, elvis presley's i want you i need you i love you and the friend turned to him and said you should write something like that so steinman went away and in his own words says the best he could come up with was i want you i need you but there ain't no way i'm ever gonna love you And this wasn't actually supposed to be on the album. Apparently, it was only added at the last minute because the label was complaining there wasn't a single uh, otherwise that they could take from it. So they shoved it on. I think it's, I think I I quite like it from a lyrical standpoint, but it's really twee musically, even for my, you know, really liberal ears. This is, um, this brings back memories. And it's still a bit of a guilty pleasure. (laughs) <laughs> I don't care for the other two ballads on this album, but I, I do like this. I like the story. And, of course, you know, you find out in the end why he can't love that girl. And it's so sad. Right, that's it. 
<laughs> Move on. Steve, Steve, Steve there ain't no Coupe de Ville hiding in the bottom of a Cracker Jack box. That's what you've got to remember. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Oh, dear. You, you can't look for a ruby in a mountain of rocks, Steve. That's the problem, mate. Okay, so let's get to the track that I think is the star of this album, Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Just... It's just a piece of genius, absolute piece of genius. Wonderfully clever. The moment, you know, how one moment of absolute sexual desperation can ruin two lives, all told with the most amazing joie de vivre. Um, This is Meatloaf's most played song live, unsurprisingly, and features Ellen Foley on female vocals. And this track, without uh, the play-by-play baseball sequence, would just be quite an ordinary song but that sequence turns it into something utterly unique i think steinman kind of came up with it because he was struggling to he wanted to write the sex scene that takes place in the car but couldn't work out a way of doing it without making it sound really filthy so he the only way he could think of doing it was the baseball analogy and he and meatloaf apparently were massive baseball fans and particularly new york yankee fans and they thought it'd be a great idea to get former yankees shortstop turned baseball commentator Phil Rizzuto to do it. And according to Steinman, Rundgren thought this was quite the most stupid idea ever and kept asking them why they were bothering to do it. Anyway, they negotiated with Rizzuto's agent, um, who was the former Mets outfielder Art Shamsky. For a month, they negotiated and got Rizzuto on the cheap because Shamsky wanted a lump sum fee. Had he asked for a sales percentage, which Steinman says the label were quite prepared to give him, Rizzuto would have made millions out of it, but he didn't. Anyway, um, they had a massive problem trying to get it to record it um, because they couldn't play him the song because Rundgren turned up to the studios without the tapes. So in the end, they had to give him a load of information to help him visualise the play in his head. Um, They had to tell him what part of the what part of the game it was. So it was the bottom of the ninth. It was an end-of-season playoff decider. It was the Yankees versus the Red Sox. They had to identify who was on base, who was trying to get on base. They had to tell him who the manager was, the pitcher. So there was this complete backstory created for him. And then he just did it in one take, um, having tried eight times before that uh, and not not getting it right. Anyway, lovely lyrical twist at the end. Um, Great song. Uh, It just makes me smile every time I hear it. Steve, I'm sure you love it too. Yeah, are you are you marking this for the creativity of the of the storyline behind it and the imagination and the innovation or the actual music? I'm marking it for how it makes me feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well I get that. Um, I find that baseball commentary interminable, and, and, and especially after that kind of funky guitar section, I, I just that leaves me cold because I, I like the initial bit. I like that kind of grease done badly start I, I do like that and it kind of drifts it goes rapidly downhill parts two and three I'm, I'm not a big let me sleep on it is just a bit too naff and then the third part is neither here nor there all I would say is thank heavens for small mercies according to Meatloaf the original length of the track was to be 27 minutes can you fucking believe it I mean it's long enough as it is yeah I think you have to be in a particular Mood for it. I, I like, I like this. Not the strongest song on the album for me, uh, but 
I hold a very, it has a very special place in, in my heart and memories. Yeah, I don't know what else I can say about it, really. Let's move it on to the final track on the album. It also happens to be Jim Steinman's favourite song and the one of which he is most proud. I'm not sure why. I don't get that. But it was the B-side to Heaven Can Wait as the single. Um, again, nice little song, uh, Even, but even though it kind of mixes kind of a depth of emotion musically with some pretty lurid lyrics uh, to create a song that has this sort of darker alter ego. Um, it just leaves me a bit cold. I, I, it's, it's well delivered, I think. I think Meatloaf's voice is great on it, but as a song, I don't much care for it. I mean, he's got some lungs, hasn't he? I'll say that for him. Yeah. And, um, he, mm. can, he, can, he, he can do any emotion you want. I, I, listen, this is my review of the album, this song title. Um, the whole thing is 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 too long. Um, this one's far too long. I've seen reviews from people saying that they were reduced to tears watching this performed in the show, and, and I'm not going to cast out or you know belittle anyone who is. Though it's hardly bring him home, is it? I mean, be honest. <laughs> if if you want if you want him if you want that big tear jerker from the from the from the shows, that would that would what? be um, far better than this. No, just just too long, just way too long. Yeah, I I, I do like the orchestral bit, you know, the, the 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 really I'm that really powerful orchestral piece in, in the middle. But um, either side of it, it's um, heaven can wait part two, isn't it, really? Yeah. So uh, there we go. That is Meatloaf, Jim Steinman, Todd Rundgren's "Bat Out of Hell" from uh, nineteen seventy seven. Steve, do you want to give us your lows and lows? Yeah, no problems, yeah. So I still like Bat Out of Hell as a song, the single version rather than the LP version. Um, so that would be my um, that would be my favourite off here. Um, and the one, Jesus, oh, where'd you go for least? You took the words right out of my mouth. Richard, your highs and lows. Heaven Can Wait is my low. And the title track is my high. Um, it's just immense, epic. Okay, uh, well, my low is two out of three ain't bad, and Paradise by the Dashboard Light would be my top pick from the album. There you go. That is uh, the final of our three albums. It's been an interesting conversation. I have no, I know where one of these albums is going, I think. Uh, I'm not sure where the other two are going to end up, but um, we'll find out soon enough because what we've got to do now is go away and mark them and then see where they end up in the long list in the Hall of Fame. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Right, so there you go. That's um, the three albums on episode 49, listened to, reviewed, and now we have scored them as well. And, um, well, let's just say that I think I was looking back, you probably have to go back to episode three for the last time we've had such a gulf in scores between two albums. We did, uh, way back then, we did... um, Deep Purple's Machine Head, Led Zeppelin 4 and Paranoid, and the gulf between Zab- Sabbath and Zep was striking. And here we are again with another chasm um, between um, a Led Zeppelin album and another poor soul, namely Meatloaf. Um, but anyway, I brought Led Zeppelin 3 to this episode, so let's start with that. I gave it a score of 8.25. Richard gave it a score of 8.25. Mark gave it a score of 8.3 for a very grand total of 8. 26667. Richard, how did Foreigner get on? Yes, the scores reflect 
how our conversation went, I think. Uh, I mean, amazingly, Steve, you and I are tied dead, giving it precisely the same score of a 7.6 overall, despite some pretty different scores track by track. And uh, Mark, not so keen, but still gave it, oh, I, mean, I think, a reasonably respectable 6.79. And that gave Foreigner's debut an overall score of 7.33. Mark, is uh, Bat Out of Hell in heaven? Uh, no, Bat Out of Hell is in hell. Um, I think I think that proves really or demonstrates what I, I said. I didn't dislike Foreigner. I just wasn't particularly taken with it. Um, Bat out of hell. Well, uh, no surprise to see it got a sub six from uh, Steve. We gave it 5.86 if you round it up. Richard, you gave it a 7.14 and I gave it a 7.8. So, you know, I love some tracks on it. I'm not so keen on others. So that pretty much reflects that. Average album score of 6.92857. Uh, let's open the doors and see where they've landed in the Hall of Fame. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. Okay, so here we are once again in these beautiful walls of our Hall of Fame. We are 147 albums down. Next episode, we actually reach our 150. But so where have our three albums from this episode got us? Well... Bat Out of Hell, unfortunately, um, is already out of the top 100, so we don't rate it as high as so many others do in terms of best rock albums of all time. It's sitting at number 122, uh, nestled between Long Cold Winter by Cinderella and Contagious by Y&T. Foreigner did better, but not fantastically better. Given the quality that's in the rest of the Hall of Fame, uh, they've sneaked in at number 91 uh, with their 7.33 score, uh, slightly above Force Majeure by Baby Taku and below Demolition by Girls School. Uh, I thought they'd do a bit better than that. I did personally, but there we go. But we have to climb way, way higher to find out where Led Zeppelin 3 got because it's in at number 14. Uh, so with its score of 8.26, uh, it uh, is a place higher than On Through the Night by Def Leppard and a place lower by Psy- Psychedelica Tessin, uh, our surprise from a few episodes back from Threshold. So there we go. What do you think of those scores and where they're sitting then, gents? Well, it was interesting what you said about a foreigner and to um, that you were slightly surprised, as indeed I was, that it was as, as low as it was. But to uh, to misquote Meatloaf, two out of three ain't good enough, is it? Because Mark was a bit more lukewarm than um, than the two of us, and that's all it takes—a little bit of lukewarmth, if that's if that's a word—and um, and that'll bring a that'll bring an album down. Echoed by um, you know my view on Bat Out of Hell, which you know has, has sent it tumbling, isn't it? But we all love Led Zeppelin three, and it just seems. It just seems almost astonishing that Led Zeppelin 3 is not in the top five or ten because it just feels like it sort of ought to be, really, and especially given how glowing we've been. But, you know, those are dizzy heights at the top of that leaderboard. And um, when we do Back in Black, if we ever do Back in Black, I'm sure that'll be up there as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, well, I, I think Bat out, Bat out of Hell is where it should be because I think, I think you know, even if you take, you know, ignore what Steve said, which you know, about it. 
the fact is, it's got two or three, for you and me, Richard, two or three absolute highlights and and quite a few stinkers. So it's not it's not a consistently good album. So I think that's where it should be. Um, I think what I um, I think what I like about where Zeppelin's ended up is that you know we've now got two Led Zeppelin albums in the top fifteen, um, and that for me kind of vindicates where physical graffiti is um because i think you know what we're saying is led zeppelin are a bloody good band but not all of their stuff is stellar um and sometimes they hit a bum note doesn't happen often um but yeah i i I was quite surprised to see zeppelin three that low i was expecting it to be in the top 10 yeah physical graffiti is sitting at 72 so uh, what's that? Fifty-eight places lower than uh, Led Zeppelin three, and yeah, I mean, have to have two albums in in the top fifteen is good going, isn't it? So yeah, I think that's a yeah, I think it's a fair reflection, uh, and and all the usual comments apply, don't they? About about it's got to be consistent in this game, um, which is why ours is the best way to rank and rate and order albums. So there we go. Another week down on the Enter Sad Men podcast. 147 albums in the Hall of Fame. Next time out, as uh, Rich says, we will hit 150 and, you know, carry on up that rock and roll highway. That's it for us uh, for this episode. We'll see you next time. Thanks for your company. Hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. We'll be back next time with another three albums. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service. (laughs) 